Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, welcome to episode 47 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're talking about something pretty interesting. It's called a meritocracy. We're gonna define what a meritocracy is. We're gonna see if the American system of socioeconomics actually runs on a meritocracy. I'll give you some of my opinions on it. And then later in the episode, we're bringing in an outside expert. He's actually one of the best known personal finance bloggers in the world. His name is Sam Dogan. You might've heard of him as the financial samurai. So later in the episode, Sam and I are gonna be talking about meritocracy and, and he's gonna talk about it from his point of view and refer to a, a recent article of his that went viral. But first, let's just get into some of the basics. What is a meritocracy? Well, it's a government or a society where the holding of power or the holding of goods, assets, positions of leadership tends to be held by people where it's selected on the basis of a person's ability. So in simple terms, it means that the people who are better get more stuff, more money, more influence, more power. And on its face, I think we all want or we all see some sort of sense of fairness from meritocratic policies in our lives. If we do things better as individuals, we want to be rewarded or compensated. We certainly don't want to be punished for doing things better. We don't want to be ignored for doing things better. And it feels somewhat unfair if our neighbor is compensated better than us, despite being quote unquote worse than us. But of course, that begs a very important and hard to answer question. What does better mean? Does it mean smarter? Is it stronger, taller, more athletic, harder working, nicer, more confident? It's hard to say. Better in one arena might be worthless in another. You know, the Houston Rockets, the NBA team, they might not cut it at NASA, but the team of engineers at NASA, they wouldn't cut it in the NBA. They're all amazing at what they do, their definitions of better are drastically different. And I submit that our society is, it's grotesquely meritocratic in some ways, and it's obscenely unmeritocratic in others. So I want to explore those two ideas and, and give you some examples of why I think that. And then we're going to bring in financial samurai Sam Dogan later to give us some of his opinions. But for starters, a meritocracy cuts both ways. The rich and powerful, they have their wealth because of their merit. And the poor, the meek, they have their poverty because of their lack of merit, right? Well, I think that sounds a little bit callous. So here's some stats. 20% of U.S. adults have a net worth less than $5,000. And 25% of American households earn less than $30,000 per year. You're going to have to forgive me here, listeners. I live in New York, Rochester, United States. I have an American bias. America is what I know. Our culture is what I know. Our stats are what I know. So again, 20% of U.S. adults have a net worth less than $5,000. 25% of households earn less than $30,000 per year. But meanwhile, we have billionaires. Most billionaires, in my opinion, they have taken significant risks, career risks, personal risks, risks with their own capital, and they have provided huge benefits to society en masse. But someone with a billion dollars has 
200,000 times more wealth than 20% of U.S. adults. So I've got this philosophical question. Sometimes I'm full of philosophical questions. You'll have to forgive me. The question is, can one person have 200,000 times more merit than another? I certainly think some people have more merit than others, no doubt about it. I don't want to live in a society where my individual merit doesn't matter at all. But 200,000 times, that is a pretty big differential in merit. In other words, the differential between billionaires and the impoverished, it feels too meritocratic, at least to me. We've identified someone with a great idea, a great business, the willingness to take a big risk, and we've rewarded them too much for it. Okay, we'll come back to that idea. Because before we go on, I want to talk about the proverbial poor kid from the tough neighborhood. So picture a five-year-old boy. He's a bit malnourished because there isn't always food on the table. He's unfamiliar with the alphabet, with numbers, colors, all the basic stuff that some kids learn before entering kindergarten. Because maybe his parents work two jobs. Maybe they're addicted to drugs. Maybe they're trying hard. Maybe they're not trying hard enough. All that matters in this particular scenario is that the boy, the five-year-old, has not received the attention that he should have. And because of that, he's behind his peers. He's behind the five-year-old from the suburbs whose parents are very attentive to him. So I hope you agree with me that the five-year-old boy that I brought up first from the tough neighborhood, he's not at fault for his circumstances. For him, it's just bad luck. And all throughout school, that pattern continues. A substandard or broken home life means that our boy, he falls further and further behind the pack. When he's eight years old, 12, 15 years old, he's failing at school. And whether he knows it or not, he's failing at becoming a successful adult. So here's my hypothetical question that I've pondered and, and I would ask you to ponder as well. At five years old, let's go back then. We, we've established pretty hard luck on the boy. And I, for one, don't blame the five-year-old for his shortcomings. I hope you agree with me there. But at, at eight years old, do you blame him for his shortcomings or is it bad luck? How about at 12 years old or at 15 years old? At what age do you start to blame this boy or young man or adult man for his own bad circumstances that he finds himself in? So my line of questioning here points out an important logical inconsistency. If five-year-olds can't be blamed for their circumstances, but at some age, 20, 22, 18, adults can be blamed for their bad circumstances, then at what age did the switch happen? Was it at age eight? Was it at age 12, at age 15? Because no matter what age you choose, you have to reconcile the fact that you're taking a human being who you agree was a victim of bad luck their entire life. But at a certain age, you decide that they're now accountable for their own circumstances. You say, He's never had a chance. It's just bad luck. Oh, but at this age, you've had all your chances. You make your own luck and it's your fault. You're in the position that you're in. That's a little bit disjointed. It's logically inconsistent. And it shows some sort of fault in the way that a meritocracy rewards people. It ignores that bad luck all throughout the young boy's life. Personally, I feel like my parents did a good job teaching me the ways of adult accountability throughout my childhood. And, and maybe your parents did the same. So yes, we should expect adolescents to show a growing personal maturity as they age. But we have to remember that our poor five-year-old boy, he has no adult mentors. His parents have failed him. 
where is his growing personal maturity going to come from? Who is his role model? This all comes back to the idea that in a meritocracy, those who fail, fail because they lack merit. That's why they fail. But I just applied some simple logic to show how easily someone can slip through the cracks of our society and become, by our standards, a failure. Not because of their lack of merit, but because of their lack of luck, because of their lack of good circumstances. Okay, so let's go back to the billionaires for a minute. We see Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Oprah Winfrey, and a common formula appears before us. A normal person with a cool idea plus some wild dedication equals immortal success. Well, I'm a normal person. You probably are too. We've all had cool ideas. So if I apply wild dedication, then I should expect to see immortal success. But the problem is that Bezos, Musk, Oprah, they are all survivors. Their ideas went through the creative destruction of the economy, of supply and demand, and those ideas have come out on top. We don't see the victims of that system, many of whom also had awesome ideas and extraordinary dedication. What differentiates the survivors from the victims? Some people will claim there's an intangible virtue involved, that it's some special sauce, an X factor, maybe it's social IQ or charisma, the willingness to work an extra hour, send that extra email, make just one more cold call. But my answer isn't nearly as popular. And yet, I think my answer is much more true. The differentiator is luck. And if a meritocracy rewards the lucky for their luck and punishes the unlucky for their lack of luck, then I think a meritocracy kind of stinks. The American ethos is anti-luck. We make our own luck, right? We pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're a nation of rugged individuals. Jeff Bezos, he was self-made. And I'm playing devil's advocate here, guys, because I do think it's a good idea to try to make your own luck, to be self-sufficient, to work hard, to make society better for yourself and for others. That's a really good thing. But I want to offer the simplest personal anecdote as a means of countering the idea of a self-made man. For as long as I remember, I've excelled, and this is me, Jesse, talking very personally, I've excelled at pattern recognition and memory. I've always been a fast learner. I've always been a good test taker. And this goes back to age three, four, five, always. And, and these happen to be valuable skills in society. I was good at school. When I was an engineer, I was a good cog in the corporate machine. Knowing wealth management, I'm good at solving clients' problems. I'm, I'm good at working quickly. I can back up my answers with objective analysis. I'm interesting and, and sometimes quirky at parties because I know the answers to lots of random things and I can be quick and funny about it. Now, that skill wasn't self-made. You can't look at a smart three-year-old or four-year-old or five-year-old, which I was, and see anything other than good fortune. You know, there was a combination of factors at play. My parents' genes, a healthy home, the right mental stimuli, and then some sort of element of pure randomness. You know, why does one kid like math, which I did, while other kids like eating crayons? I didn't earn that brain. And yet our meritocracy specifically rewards me for it. Of course, my life isn't pure luck, right? I'd like to think that I work hard. I'm making a choice to get behind this microphone and produce this podcast. I'm making a choice to write the best interest every week. But ignoring luck in my life, it would be an obvious oversight. And I think it would be a mistruth. 
We all played that same genetic and environmental lottery. You played it too. So through no actions of your own, some of us have won that lottery more than others. That's just luck. Those who refuse to acknowledge that lottery, they have blinders on. And a meritocracy, at least in its purest form, is blind to that idea. I'm not purely self-made. I'm not a rugged individual. Neither are you. And neither is any billionaire. So we'd like to think that destiny should have nothing to do with where you were born, how educated your parents are, what elementary school you went to. We'd like to think that you are in control of your destiny. That idea would make social mobility easily attainable. There wouldn't be a concrete ruling class. There would be a very fluid middle class, mostly made up of working people. Educational systems, they'd have their private schools, but the elite colleges wouldn't dominate the higher education landscape. And yet, that's not how our system is set up. Daniel Markovitz, a Yale law professor and author of The Meritocracy Trap, he offers up many illuminating statistics in his book. For example, families in the top 20% of income distribution produce three and a half times more Ivy League graduates than families in the bottom 40% of income distribution. In light of that stat, how can we claim that intrinsic skill will rise to the top? Do the wealthy have intrinsically different DNA than the rest of us? Of course not. We all have the same human DNA. Markovitz has a simple answer to that question. The children of rich people simply do better on the merits. And what he means there is that wealthy parents, they pay for things like private schooling, for private lessons, for private SAT test prep. City schools, their goal often is just to get 50% of their kids to graduate. Private high schools, on the other hand, they want to place all of their graduates at top 25 universities. It's such a big difference. In fact, the two leading indicators for a child's long-term success has nothing to do with their intelligence, their social IQ, their athletic ability, their willingness to work hard, or any other personal trait typically associated with merit. Instead, the two leading indicators for a child's long-term success are their zip code and their parents' income. In other words, poor kids from poor neighborhoods, even if they rank highly in individual merit, are unlikely to do as well as their wealthier peers. Now, that is not a meritocracy. That's not the society we hope for. It's not that the rich are cheating, although in some cases, like that college cheating scandal at USC a few years ago, they are cheating. Instead, it's that the system favors the rich even when everybody plays by the rules. In some ways, you know, wealthy people were created by the system and therefore know how the system works. It's not some malevolent puppeteer creating the system. Instead, it's just people going about their daily lives and society just tends to skew in certain directions. If you're a doctor, your spouse is a lawyer, you've learned that working hard, studying hard, building a practice, long hours, being smart, doing well on tests, all these things have led to your good life. And you're more likely to push your children in that direction. Whereas if a child's parents have none of that background, if they have none of that knowledge, if a child's parents instead are more concerned about what's on TV or their drug addiction or simply getting enough money to put food on the table, that child is not going to learn anything about how to succeed in this society. They're not going to learn about how to become a doctor. They're not going to have that same emphasis on doing well on tests.
The status quo sees students whose parents earn $200,000 or more score about 400 points higher on average on SATs than students from families earning less than $20,000 per year. Rich kids do better on tests than poor kids. It has nothing to do with their natural genetic intelligence. Instead, it's that wealthier kids tend to have a better environment for learning growing up. And by the time they're 18, taking that SAT test, it really starts to show. So do we want a system where a bright kid from a tough background still gets a chance? I say yes. I think most of you would probably say yes. But as of now, that's not really the way our system is set up. So I've just discussed some ways in which our society tends to ignore people who happen to have merit, but are also from a tougher background, how our supposed meritocracy tends to leave them behind. But many of you might have heard of situations, especially over the past few years, where different sort of bastardization of meritocracy is going on. Situations where those who do have merit and those who don't have merit are actually treated exactly the same, where the playing field is leveled in such a way that those who are succeeding aren't given commensurate reward. Now, it can be something as simple as a youth sports league where there are no winners, no losers, and everybody gets a trophy. Now, I understand the idea of not wanting to hurt children's feelings. Totally get that. I understand that there's a certain age at which we want to give kids a lesson in quote-unquote real life, right? And we want to start to show them that the real world has meritocratic principles and the real world will reward you for things going well and you won't get a reward if things don't go well. And so that's why we're bringing on Sam Dogan here into the podcast to talk to us a little bit about some situations that he's run into in his experience dealing with meritocracy. And uh, Sam is going to shed his opinions, which are noticeably different than mine, but I think it's good to have different opinions and to hear all sides and, and to let some of you listeners decide what you think. Sam has quite the incredible resume, so let me hit some highlights here. The Financial Samurai, it's easily one of the most popular finance blogs in the world, attracting over 1 million monthly readers. Sam retired from the corporate world in 2013 at age 36. His story and his writing was a major kickstart to the modern FIRE or financial independence movement. Sam's a massive proponent of passive income, including residential real estate and dividend-paying stocks. And last year, I believe it was last summer, Sam published a best-selling personal finance book entitled Buy This, Not That. And I hope we can get into the details of that book in a few minutes. Sam, thanks for joining the Best Interest Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's get into some questions, Sam. You know, we, we kind of talked about this over email before hopping on the recording here. I want to focus on one of your recent articles called How to Survive the War on Merit When Hard Work Isn't Enough. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one thing in that article that one of your retirement passions, you're a high school tennis coach. So I was wondering, how does meritocracy play a role on your team? Well, meritocracy is super important in sports because everybody has different talents and work ethics. And so if we want to win as a coach, we need to position our lineup and our ladder as best possible to win. You know, you can't really win based on your good looks or your big smile. You can only win if you beat your opponent based on your skills 
And a lot of it has to do with work ethic as well. And so meritocracy is really interesting because I think all of us have grown up thinking, oh, if we work hard, we're going to get commensurately rewarded. But it seems like there's been a change in the way we're rewarded nowadays as we're trying to strive for inclusivity, equality for all. And so I believe in equality for all, equal opportunity, but it's just impossible to have equal outcomes. We can provide uh, more opportunities for you know kids to compete and try to get ahead, but I think it's a fool's game to expect everybody to end up the same. Gotcha. I, I totally follow what you're saying there. And, and one thing I was talking about kind of before we hopped on the recording when it was just me monologuing, and one thing I'm hoping to get into with you is that in some cases, it seems like the way a meritocracy is changing is that it's kind of pushing everyone towards the middle, where it's kind of like, you know, the most excellent of us are, are pushed to the middle. And then you mentioned an article or a story in your article about Thomas Jefferson High School that we can get into. But in general, I mean, do you think, should the rest of society be formatted in the same meritocratic way that, say, your tennis team is, where it's just very clear that the best tennis player is number one player on your team and the worst tennis player might get cut? I mean, what ways do you think the rest of society should kind of follow that model? You know, I think it's really tricky right now because nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. But the reality is about high school level, you kind of realize there are some people more talented than you and you've got to accept that fact. And if you are less talented or you have less intelligence or physical attributes, the only way to kind of even out the playing field is to try harder. But in my article, I was talking about, you know, trying harder might not get you where you want to go. So you have to actually have to be, you know, really tactical in terms of building relationships with the gatekeepers, the people who decide whether you're going to get in or not, you're going to get paid or promoted or not, going to share your work or not, accept your book idea or not, all these things. These are the gatekeepers that have this advantage. And the key is to recognize who those gatekeepers are, understand what their interests are, try to assimilate with them. Even if you don't believe in everything they do, if you're not financially independent yet and you want to be financially independent, you've got to learn how to interact with society in a way that'll put you in a favorable light. Because at the end of the day, people are going to promote and pay and support people who they like more than who they don't and who they don't know. So you're kind of saying in many cases, it's not about what you know, which meritocracy would be. It's more about who you know. You know, when I, when I first heard about that phrase in my 20s, you know, I rolled my eyes. Like, come on, that's just such BS, you know, networking, networking. It's such a pain, right? Who wants to do office politics and all right. that? But now that I'm 45 years old, I clearly see the benefits of who you know and your network. So as a 45-year-old guy, all my friends have over 20 years experience now. Not all, but like the vast majority, right? Because, you know, we graduated high school 30 something years ago, 35 years ago. And, you know, we, we just have a lot of experience, not 35 years ago, but 25 years ago. And so the idea is that if you are able, if I was able to stay in touch and keep friendships with all my childhood friends, man, I'd have a huge network. I, I don't think I'd ever starve again. They would say, hey, Sam, you know, let me, let me hire your son to join my company. Or, hey, let me make you an introduction to join this club. Or let me let me tell people about your book by this, not that, you know, it's just like my network would be massive. But I think all of all of us, we fail to maintain our network over time because we get busy, we're selfish, you know, life goes on. And so, yeah, the network is so important. 
I was just going to say that. I mean, for for some of us, and myself included, it sounds like you, Sam, like we get busy, right? We don't necessarily have the time to maintain the hundreds, if not thousands of relationships that we started at one point in our life. Mm-hmm. So what kind of filters do you use? I mean, I'm going to skip ahead to, you know, one of the questions I kind of sent you in an email where you mentioned seven tips to survive what you call the war on merit. And one of them you already got into about knowing who the gatekeepers are. But I mean, are there other tips that you have about which relationships, which friendships you should maintain over time? Because it's hard to maintain them all. So so where should we focus our energy and our effort? Yeah, ideally, it'd be great to maintain relationships with only the people we like and, and, and want to hang out with and get along with. But the reality is you probably need to be strategic in your relationship building. Again, who are the people who control your destiny? understand the backgrounds of your gatekeepers. Because the thing is, let's say you're Asian American and you want to join an organization that has no Asian American people on the board or in leadership roles. You're probably going to be at a a disadvantage to your peers who have a better reflection of management and themselves in the workforce. So one is really you have to identify like who you want to be a part of and who are the leaders and then you've got to assimilate with the gatekeepers. You got to understand who they are. And then you should have a concurrent backup plan where it's like, even if you're assimilating great, people like you, don't believe everything people say you know, when they're talking to you face to face, because what people say in front of you and what people say behind closed doors can be very different. So you have to have that backup plan where you're you know, working on a side hustle, you have your X factor, you're building a business. Or, you know, you're networking with your competitors in a different field, at a different company in your field. I mean, very important. But for me, I think the best way to overcome this meritocracy decline reward system is by being so rich. It doesn't really matter. You know, the gatekeepers don't matter anymore. And so that's the funny thing, right? You're so rich that it doesn't really matter if you don't have that job. It doesn't really matter if some school wants to suppress your kids' chances of getting into a school, whatever it is, because you have the business to hire them into your business and you have the money to always take care of them so they can do whatever they want. I'm just trying to think right now from the listener's side of things. I mean, that's a great solution, right? If it's, <laughs> it's not achievable, easy. right? It's not easy. And and my my one thought is, you know, so I'm an engineer by training. So I always push things to the minimum and the maximum to understand if, if they break at that point and then try to understand why, right? So if I push that idea to the maximum, I ask myself, can everyone out there achieve a status where they have so much money that it doesn't matter what relationships they maintain in life? I'm not sure if that's possible. I have my doubts, but I'm curious. I mean, you're, you've are you been writing to thousands, millions of people for, for many years. I mean, do you find that do your readers kind of start to internalize your messages to them and and start to kind of mimic the path that you've taken to that point of kind of FU money, for lack of a better term? Sure. I think you've got to use hardship as motivation to change. And I pity the person who has everything given to them. You know, they're born into a super wealthy family. I don't know. They're just the right type of person that everybody loves because they're so good looking. They don't work on their personality or their communication skills. I pity them because it robs them of the opportunity to work hard and feel tremendous self-satisfaction from their hard work. I think that's all anybody ever wants, to see a correlation with reward and hard work. I don't know anybody who wants a handout, and I don't know anybody who feels good getting a handout. 
think deep down inside, you just feel bad and you, you just, you want to prove yourself. That's just the way we are as humans. So I think those people reading Financial Samurai are highly motivated, highly intelligent, not easily angered by things. You know, they can see other points of view and, and they accept reality. There's a great saying, it's easier to wear slippers than carpet the world. Mm. You know, so it's like, take care of your own self, do what you can for yourself and your family, and then work within the system to try to get ahead. And so I try to write articles on Financial Samurai that kind of shine light on maybe touchy subjects, but that'll hopefully help people get ahead no matter what. Right. Okay. One thing I like that you just touched on there, Sam, that maybe I've been guilty of before is, so one thing you said was we all have this innate feeling that we want to see a correlation between the effort we put in and the rewards that we get back out. I mean, that's meritocracy 101 right there, right? The harder we work, the more reward we want. And, and sometimes you and I both know that's not the case in this world. That's just not the way that the system works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that I think I've done in my writing is I've just said, huh, this is kind of backwards. I don't really like it. But one thing that you've done, you've probably taken it a step further in a much better way, which is to say, yeah, that's just the way things are. But here's how you make your own slippers, right? Here, here's what you can do to actually apply some of this to your own life. So I was wondering, maybe we can segue here, Sam, and, and I want to ask you just a couple questions about, about your book, Buy This, Not That. Mm. So I know that today we haven't been talking about the actual nitty-gritty personal finance investing topics, but in your book, you do talk about that quite a bit more. But just in a nutshell, if you had to give you know, a, a one or two minute synopsis of why you wrote your book, who it's for, who that ideal reader is, or, or what someone listening to this should think if they're going to buy that book, what would you tell them? Well, buy this, not that, how to spend your way to wealth and freedom is for anybody who wants to do just that. And for anybody who wants to make more optimal decisions on some of life's biggest dilemmas. And the reason why I wrote the book was, one, I was given an opportunity to write this book by Portfolio Penguin Random House at the beginning of the pandemic. And I figured, you know what, if I'm going to get locked down for who knows how long, I'm going to just write a book and make lemonade out of a difficult situation. And that's always been my modus operandi for as long as I can live. Sprain my ankle, whew, thank God I didn't break my ankle. Let's go play some more tennis. You know, that's just the way I, I am. The other thing is, when I started Financial Samurai in 2009, there weren't many or any, I didn't, I didn't know of anybody with a finance background writing about personal finance. And so when I was offered this book deal in 2020, I also didn't see people with traditional finance backgrounds writing personal finance books. Instead, most of them were marketers. And so it's really interesting to delineate between an online marketer writing about personal finance and a person with a finance background writing about personal finance. And I know, I know all about online marketing because that's just, you can make a lot of money online if you want to. Right. And so I wanted to approach it in a fundamental financial way that was also really interesting with storytelling. And that would also touch upon really big decisions in life, such as when should you have kids? Should you send your kids to private school or public school? Should you invest in real estate or stocks? Where should you live to boost your career? All these things that I've encountered, and I think the large majority of people will eventually have to decide and encounter as well. And I thought that was very missing in, in the book marketplace. And so that's why I wanted to write it. Awesome. I was just going to say that the topics that you tackle are 
hyper applicable, right? It's these questions that a lot of us and, and whether it's especially maybe folks in my generation, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here at 32, but a lot of these questions are whether it's coming out of college, starting my career, building my career, buying that first home, starting a family, financial related questions. Yeah. It's like, what's, it's not just about let's make money for money's right. sake. I wanted to make, I write a book that was very applicable to why you want to build wealth and how you can spend your money towards better decisions and better life and more financial freedom. Awesome. Awesome. So Sam, I'm going to throw links down in the show notes to both the article from Financial Samurai about meritocracy and also to what, should I send people to Amazon to buy a copy of Buy This, Not That? Sounds good. I'll send you the link. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds good, Sam. And one last question. What is your deadliest weapon in your tennis game? <laughs> My mind. Ooh. I got to the 5.0 level in USTA tennis, which is uh, top 1%. Right. Pretty uh, good. That's where ex-college players play. Everybody, all my close friends would make fun of me because I you know I don't hit it with a lot of power. I'm not particularly, you know, I'm strong, nothing, right? And so I always joke, yeah, you know, maybe I have 4.0 skills, but I got a 6.0 mind. <laughs> and so if you play me, you're going to go through a mind bender. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to self-doubt. And I'm going to make you beat yourself because I'm not going to beat myself. I'm going to make you beat yourself awesome. and I'm going to keep on going <laughs> and I'm going to run down every single ball. And then one day or one point in that match, you're going to be like, ah, oh, screw it. I give up. So my mind. The war of attrition, the long game. Hey, that's, that's, right. that's what we're all playing. Very cool, Sam. Well, thank you again for sitting down with us today on the Best Interest Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.